Hello and welcome to the MESAM podcast. This is the podcast in which we talk to MESAM members and associates about their recent or current research into the medieval world of Central Europe. I'm Karen Culver, and today it is my great pleasure to meet with Lucy Dolezalova and talk to her about her work on colophons, their scribes, their humour and their nonsense. Lucy is an alumna of the Medieval Studies Department at CEU and currently a professor of Medieval Latin at the Charles University in Prague. In her research, she has dealt with medieval memory and mnemonics, manuscript transmission and book history, and interpreting obscurity in medieval texts. She has written and presented numerous papers and articles and recently published a monograph on the late medieval graphomaniac Crux of Talesh. Lucy, welcome to the MISAM podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, colophons. Can we please start with the most basic question, which I am going to need? What is a colophon? Are they the same as scribal additions? And who were the scribes who wrote them? Sure. Um, actually, as far as the terminology is concerned, there is not a unanimous view on that. But there is a sort of consensus that colophon is a addition at the end of a copy that the scribe made, which includes at least one of the following. The time when the copy was made, place when it was made, the name of the scribe or for whom the copy was made. So as soon as it includes any particular information about the origin, uh, it's considered colophon. Scribal editions, on the other hand, that's just a... Uh, not even a term, it's just uh, the way we refer to something that comes from the scribe's own head. So not when he copies from the model, but when he adds something else. It can be a marginal note or it can be a note at the end of the copy, which is not a colophon. And uh, then you ask, who wrote them? Yeah, so yes. the scribes wrote them. We may hope they might provide an actual insight into the process of copying and to the minds of the scribes, to the personalities uh, of the scribes. So in general, when we study the Middle Ages, as we all know, it is quite difficult to find the personal touch. Uh, it's very rare that um, the authors say, I personally think or remember their unhappy childhood or share their psychological traumas, etc., etc. Um, so these interventions that the scribes add to the copied texts seem to promise <laughs> some some real uh, real touch with the actual human being behind the manuscript copy. And I'm just wondering, were they all religious people or were lay people scribes as well? Yeah, this uh, differs very much throughout the Middle Ages. So at the beginning, of course, uh, manuscripts are copied primarily in monasteries. And then these would be trained professional scribes who execute them or monks that do it as part of their um, meditation. Or, But then when uh, schools and universities start to flourish, then we will get many unprofessional scribes. And in the late Middle Ages which is uh, the period I am most interested in, we have 
many scribes who are just uh, totally untrained and uh, unprofessional, and many of them also write for their own use. So it's not anymore the relationship between a client and a simple copyist, but the scribe is writing something that uh, he or she is interested in and is writing it for themselves, for their own use. And so while copying, they often adapt the text or they omit things they are not interested in or add other stuff. So it becomes a very creative way of copying. Um, they interfere with the text in ways uh, that it's difficult to call them mere scribes. Um, there is a border between being a scribe and being an author, which is often very difficult to, <laughs> to draw. Uh, and this is what I am uh, actually very much interested in. And the case of uh, Crux of Telge that you mentioned at the beginning, a guy with whom I spent some six years uh, researching him, that was exactly such a case. A person who rarely just simply copied what he saw in his model. He tended to interfere in a very substantial way. Although we can confirm his authorship in the traditional sense only in two short letters, He's actually much more of an author, even when he's only copying. Um, and he added to his copies over 130 colophones and editions. So we are able to reconstruct his career from schools through Prague University, Catholic administration. Then he was a preacher in southern Bohemia and he ended up in Augustinian canonry in Trebony. But although we have so much information about this one person, we still don't get this um, personal touch. He copied a lot, but that actually means he was interested in totally everything. So we can't even see his personal interests or predilections or passions. He seems to have just loved to copy. <laughs> and, uh, and so my point here is that I would really like to explore these scribal editions in more detail and in a wider scope. But it's difficult to promise that we will find out who were these scribes. And I can see why you call Crooks a graphomaniac. <laughs> Looking back at the, at the many of the shorter scribal editions which come in the margins or the ends, when I was reading your interesting papers, I was just wondering if there was any relationship between the content of the text, the style, was it religious or secular? Was it long text, short text? What kind of texts were these? Yeah, these editions are added to the whole variety of texts. But we are actually in the project, which is not a personal project, it's a, uh, it's a team project. And it's just at its beginning. But th this is one of the most important questions, to see where uh, these editions appear, whether they tend to appear together with a particular genre or, as you say, a rather longer text or a shorter text or uh, in what sort of environment. It is already very clear that it will differ also in, uh, in time. We have many more from the late Middle Ages, and they are also much more varied. Um, there are many from the university, probably more than from monasteries. So they appear everywhere, but exactly uh, a sort of map and a temporal line as well. 
are among the issues that we would like to show. The problem is that while colophones are interesting for historians, so historians uh, have cared for making repertories of colophones, the other sorts of editions are frequently not not even in manuscript catalogs. So uh, there is the end of the copy, uh, amen, and then there might be a short riddle or just uh, written, I wrote it with my feet and not with my hands or some sort of short sentence like this. And that the cataloger did not even consider it important to put it into the catalog. So first we have to establish a corpus and that will be quite a challenge. <laughs> When we have the corpus, <laughs> then we will be able to answer all the other questions. Um, among some very preliminary answers, it's frequently longer texts, for sure. So there is some element of relief. There is some uh, some tendency that uh, if the scribe had to put a special energy into copying from the model then he is also more likely to feel tired at the end. And at the moment when he or she feels freed from the task, uh, then gets a bit more creative. But that's just a sort of intuitive idea, and I will be happy to see it confirmed or otherwise. I suppose mapping and relating to the style and length will reveal enormous amount but it won't tell us anything about the scribes themselves. So we did not really speak about these editions, how they look like. Um, there is a lot of, indeed, a lot of creativity and also experiment. So our project for the time being concentrates on the late medieval Bohemia primarily, and we will compare uh, Latin and Czech and German very frequently these editions combine the different languages. Uh, so they use code switching uh, within just a single sentence. And uh, they even include some words that are not known from anywhere else. These neologisms are especially interesting for our old Czech colleagues uh, because they really hope to find new words and they have found already several completely unknown words. So... On the one hand, these editions seem very original. They seem like it's coming from the scribe's mind. But on the other hand, these editions are very formulaic. So there are some formula, like even this writing with feet and not with hands, that appear throughout manuscripts uh, in the whole Europe. Sometimes you find something and you feel that, oh, yeah, so this scribe, such a great idea. And then you find it 20 more times in a completely unrelated context. It was not quite a personal outburst of emotions, as it might sometimes seem, but it was also a conscious choice of a established formula for the end. And also this tension is really interesting for me to, to what degree uh, it's a fashion that has its rises and falls and to what degree it, uh, it can be considered still in some way innovative or experiment. It really is forensic philology. <laughs> so the colophons, you can identify who they are. Um, and I'm now just wondering 
with these formulaic lines of written by hand, not by foot, or the other way round, could you also map those lines and start to see where the idea, the concept came from? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. That's what we hope to do. So there is not even some fixed categorization of the types of editions. There are only some intuitive categories. Uh, one of them is uh, that describe the needs after finishing the copy. So um, his hand hurts, he's thirsty, he's hungry, he wants a nice girl. Or he asks for a reward, which may be money, or it may be a beautiful girl or something else. Or he apologizes that he did not do better. That's frequently also the case, like, oh, I tried, but maybe I failed. If you know better, go ahead and uh, do it better. There are curses from stealing the books. Uh, there are prayers, etc., etc. And then there are texts that are not easy to place and they seem just like a joke or just <laughs> really difficult to interpret and of course I'm most interested in those <laughs> but <laughs> yes I can imagine now, from your paper I realized that some were in rhyme and mixing the rhymes between Latin and and Czech which is kind of weird some were almost rude what was the importance of these variations in language? And is it the same in other regions? Are people mixing Latin and German or Latin and Polish? Yeah, they are. So the code switching is really omnipresent in these editions throughout Europe. And uh, the uniting element is the transgressing of rules. After the scribe has followed the rules of the language and of copying and behaving well, then when the model is over, it's like a liminal transition territory that is free to be used. And so using codes, using riddles, or just suddenly turning the point um, or the attention from some sophisticated idea that was part of the text before, to the here and now, to the physicality of the fact that, okay, now I am thirsty, now my hand hurts, I just finished copying. So there is really this quite a strong contrast between uh, the text as a, an idea and the text in its materiality on the parchment or on the paper. And these scribal editions often bring attention to the materiality, to what's happening right now. How many hours, weeks, months would a book take to copy for a scribe? Yeah, there are different uh, sorts of estimations. In the 12th century, when the writing was still very careful and the letter O needs four different strokes, copying is much more slow. In the 15th century, when there are these unprofessional scribes writing for themselves and the script is cursive, it is much faster we have one text from uh, Crooks of Telch. It's a commentary to Aristotle's Metaphysics, where he puts a colophon at the end of every book. 
so there are some 40 colophones just for one manuscript and we can see how many folios he copied in five days and then in 10, etc., etc. And it is very uneven. You can see that this is not a professional scribe. This is a student and one day he, he has a lot more time and the other he has less time. But the average for him was, I think, four folios, so eight pages per day. That would not be enough for a professional, but for a student that's uh, like a fair average. Uh, the whole Bible in late Middle Ages, for example, is often estimated between 15 and 18 months for a professional scribe full-time. But it's really difficult to to make estimations. My goodness, my hand hurts just <laughs> thinking about that. Were they writing on parchment or paper? And is paper quicker? Uh, it's not so much that it's quicker, but since paper was cheaper, uh, it was not accessed with so much reverence. <laughs> so it is used also for quick scribbling. Uh, so I did quite a lot of work on late medieval paper miscellaneous codices, which look completely different than earlier medieval parchment codices, which are always very organized and carefully executed. Uh, the late medieval manuscripts, like those of Crux of Telge, are really disorganized. And you can see that a medieval manuscript book is much more a process than a product. Something is going on uh, and the, the scribe slash author while copying is sort of um, thinking aloud. So you can often <laughs> just see how uh, the scribes are like defining what is actually happening. Also, Again, the paper pages, more than the parchment pages, um, are much more open to later interferences by other scribes. So often you have completely different hands on, on one page, exactly because the page is already quite disorganized anyway, so the later readers don't hesitate to, to interfere. Again, this is a simplification. We have pages with many hands uh, in parchment too, but in late Middle Ages, this is um, especially frequent. At that point, you really are touching the hand of the man or the woman who wrote it. Yeah. Um, we know some of these scribal editions were humorous or perhaps even making no sense, nonsense. Can you explain what you mean by making no sense? And the nonsense that I was brought up on, like Alice in Wonderland, it was humorous. This nonsense is also humorous or not? <laughs> yeah, these are all excellent questions. Uh, humor is really context-bound. And we have to be very careful always when we laugh at something medieval to wonder whether that was really meant to be funny or whether it's only our laughter and the other way around. So some of the medieval jokes are really too nasty uh, to laugh at. But then I can see that... Uh, the whole context and setting suggests that it was supposed to be funny, so I'm trying to work <laughs> with that. Um, and similarly for nonsense, actually. So when we try to define it in some absolute terms, it should be something what really does not make any sense. And as soon as we find a function for it, then it ceases to be nonsense. 
So in such absolute terms, there would be very little nonsense. Um, especially as medievalists, we are used to finding sense in things that does not seem to make sense at the beginning. So we are very well trained. But we should also be careful, I think, about over-interpreting, on the other hand. Sometimes we are so keen of finding uh, what things mean and we are cl- clever enough to come up with something, but uh, we should also be a bit hesitant about this. So, in less less extreme way, nonsense is violating rules. It may be rules of language on the level of individual words. So it is creating a word or series of words that are not easy to interpret within grammar and rules and customs of a particular language. That's one option. And the other option is that it violates the rules or conventions on a on a level of uh, of a larger sense there is a subject there is a verb there is an object but they don't go together in a normal way so it's a violation of norm in both cases either norm of on the level of individual words or norm uh, on the level of sentences how they are built semantically but This definition is again very much context bound. So we can have different sort of norms or we can define the norm in a different way and then nonsense will be something else. But as far as the nonsense of these scribal editions is concerned, um, so that's not my idea that some of them are nonsensical. It it has appeared uh, before uh, the idea that, okay, and then there is a type which is nonsense. But there is also the other view that um, nonsense as a literary category appears only in the 19th century. So uh, <laughs> Louis Carroll would be also the the pioneer. And uh, even some literary analysis of nonsense mention that that we can't trace nonsense in the antiquity and in the Middle Ages. I disagree with that, but there is really not much research uh, done on that. And here we really mean it as as a literary category, so as a sort of aesthetic means. So nonsense as something that should baffle you, but it's not a riddle. Riddle has a solution and then you can be happy about the solution. With nonsense, you remain baffled (laughs) until the end. So you try and try and you fail. But it is a sort of um, literary means of provoking certain emotion, be it emotion of dissatisfaction or anger or um, trauma or whatever. Yeah, um, I think nonsense is an interesting concept. Yeah, well, in these cases, it's more like um, non sequitur. So you have maybe combination of two sentences that you just don't know how they are connected, why they should follow each other. Or you have some juxtaposition of things that you would not put together uh, yourself and then the reader is baffled why they are like this. Can you give some examples? Um, yeah, we have uh, some nice in old Czech. Um, one of them was um, the sausage is flying, uh, bold man is burping 
Would you like to know or not? Fly away, duck, etc., etc. So it's even difficult to translate into English because you are not sure how the words uh, should be connected. Yeah, that would sort of imply someone's uh, writing down almost the first words that come <laughs> to come to mind. Fly away, duck. I can see your point. Those are words that work together, but not in the context of the blood sausage. Yeah. And you've got one which it's partially Latin and then goes into old Czech. Yeah, so often you get Czech word included in some even formula. So um, explicit hoc totum infunde dami hipotum is a normal formula. So this is the end, poor give me drink. And then the Czech one would change the potum for piva, so give me beer. And in another variant, chleba, give me bread, which again is weird because it comes after the poor. But we have the Czech expression that beer is uh, liquid bread, so it might be <laughs> connected to that, but, but we don't know. It might be still just playing with the idea that you are pouring bread. Absolutely wonderful. Again, you feel you can almost say good morning to those scribes. Uh, you note in your papers that several of the coliforms use the word ponch, which could mean shoe or shoe strap. There are also some of the coliforms that will say things like, this was written by hand, not by foot, or this was written by foot. Is there any link between those references to shoes and socks and writing by hand or foot? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting idea. But with the punch or more frequently punchu or variations of that, uh, that's again not something I came up with, but a German scholar has already decoded it. That's just one word added after etc. So the copy ends and there is etc. Punchu. In some catalogues, they interpret it as the name of the scribe. So it even says, oh, the scribe Punchu uh, has copied this. But it seems really unlikely because the word appears really frequently. And uh, the interpretation that I subscribe to is that it's a sort of uh, manipulation of the word punctum. So it's etc. full stop. So this is really the end, etc. punctum, and then the punctum changes into punch, punchu, uh, buntshu, uh, and so on. But that's a great example of, of how this works. So you find etc. Bunchu, and then you find it's a shoe with strap or sort of sandal, and then you wonder, like, why sandal at the end of this theological treatise? What does it mean? And then the solution is this simple play with uh, the original Latin word punctum. You've actually just mentioned something I was thinking of, the etc. Why etc., which I... I believe means and so on and so on. Why etc. at the end? Yeah, uh, it's uh, really interesting. Uh, it's sort of both the end and not the end, right? So if you finish with amen, then you are saying, okay, this is the end. 
But if you finish something, something, etc., then you suggest that I could go on, but I am not going on. <laughs> so any word that appears after etc. is sort of addition, not obligatory, not necessary. Uh, So it's sort of innovation what comes after. And frequently these are really weird words. Yeah, you've mentioned Stari Baba. Yeah, etc. Baba Stara is uh, an addition that I found in 14 manuscripts from late medieval Bohemia. So that's not so little. <laughs> And uh, again, we have no idea what, uh, why Baba Stara. Baba Stara means old hag. Um, old women, old hags, they are considered a bit useless. So unlike old men, they can't produce offspring anymore. So their main function is is over. Um, and they are often considered either powerless or if powerful, then evil or somehow wicked. So all these witches, it's really not easy to find a positive old woman. If there is a positive old woman, she's not quite so old. If you remember how Anne, the mother of Mary, is portrayed, she's never old in the pictures, even though she has Mary and Mary has uh, Jesus in her lap, so she is grandmother, but she does not look like a grandmother. Um, positive representations of old women are uh, are really rare. And then, again, there is this materiality or this flesh character to it, right? So, again, we had the text, which is a sort of idea, uh, something immaterial. And after it, we will have the sausages, the shoes, the old women, the beer and uh, food and hurting uh, hands, etc., etc. So, again, it's somehow material. The, the texts that were being copied apart from the crooks of Delage, presumably were being mostly ordered by clients. Is there any information on how the paying clients received these scribal editions? Would they have understood the humour? Would they have been delighted to receive their copy of a sermon with a discussion of, I want a woman, at the end of it? What were they thinking of when they got all these wonderful editions? Uh, yeah, that's also a good question and we don't have many traces of their reactions. But I would also like to say that uh, Crux is not unique in uh, writing for himself. So it's really very frequent at the end of the Middle Ages that the scribes were writing for themselves. And then these editions uh, can also be interpreted as editions for themselves. But there are also copies for clients with editions. And I think that it was not considered part of the text. The scribe was asked to uh, prepare the copy and that's it. So I imagine it a bit like now when I search for something on the internet and there is some advertisement popping down or on the side and then I just take it as the unfortunate <laughs> accompanying event. Um, but this is total uh, overinterpretation probably. The fact is that these editions are not everywhere, but are quite frequent and don't get erased. So it seems that there was not some huge care for deleting these sort of interventions. 
that would make some sense because you you have mentioned earlier that the texts, the manuscripts are listed, the colophon information about where it was written is recorded, but no one's ever bothered to do research on the scribal editions. So maybe the clients just ignored it as well. That's right. Yeah, we can compare it to the catalogers who also just easily neglected these interventions and... Um, and another aspect that I haven't mentioned is that uh, they also usually visually look different. For example, uh, Dominic Stutzmann made huge research on Book of Hours and the colophones in Book of Hours from really uh, many exemplars. Um, he's primarily interested in paleography, so he shows that different font is used and you can immediately see that something else is there. So so the colophon or some other edition immediately catches your eye as distinct. Um, and that counts for absolute majority of the of the scribal editions. Yeah, I'd been wondering about the handwriting because nowadays we can read so much of a personality from the handwriting. Um, was it the same? Uh in the late Middle Ages, we can already distinguish a hand. For the earlier periods, we can often distinguish a scriptorium. So a particular scriptorium would have some specific way of uh, copying books. And then you can say that, yeah, this was most probably copied there. With, uh, yeah, with the late medieval scribes, they really... Uh, since they are not professionally trained and they write cursive, there is more... Um, possibility of creating their own handwriting. But it also changes throughout their lives. So some of the scribes have such different script in different periods of their lives that uh, if they did not sign their name, you would not be able to say that uh, this is the same person. So the writing gets bigger as they get older because they see verse, obviously, but that's not all. So often really this whole uh, way the letters are formed changes radically during the years. My God, yes, you really are beginning to meet them, greet them, say good morning to them. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I know you're at the beginning of quite a significant research project and it's not just your research project, you've got quite a big team. Um, what more research do you want to do on the scribal editions? And for me, even more interesting, what will it reveal about the scribes, the, the people themselves? Yeah, we hope a lot. <laughs> so the idea of the project is to take colophones and scribal editions as one. So Whatever is edited after the scribe finishes the copy will be taken together, irrespective whether it gives some specific historical information or whether it's just a joke or whatever else. And we hope to see in time and space how these are frequent. So we will record also cases where there is no scribal edition, to see when they are more popular, when when they appear, in what contexts, are they more attached to specific genres, for example, or how it is in different countries. For example, it seems already that the German-speaking countries will have many, 
but the French and English much less of these other sort of editions. Um, so we start with the Czech lands, but we already have very good contacts in Poland because the Central European material is much less represented. So in this way, we will try to catch up uh, with the Western material and present a more balanced picture. And then this will be a database, which will have really many options of visualizations and of search. And hopefully on this huge scale, we will be able to see some patterns. So patterns of popularity of particular formula, but also it will allow us to uh, define actual innovations. Then Uh, we can focus on these instances when it's not just mere taking over a formula, but it has some new added value to it and uh, and interpret those. As far as the personality of the scribe is concerned, I get more and more skeptical. Although they really are interesting and it's really a pleasure to look over their shoulder But to see what was actually going on their mind, um, I am not so sure. Beside Crooks of Telch, I worked also, for example, on Gallus Kemli from St. Gallen. He was a wandering monk and like Crooks, he always visited some place and then he copied something what he found there. And then in the colophon, he also described the place frequently. So he was visiting a nunnery and then he said, oh, all these nuns, they are terrible. They sleep with all the monks. So you get sort of insight into the time and place, but uh, they are really not very reliable narrators. So after a while, you see that this Gallus Kemli is not happy anywhere and everywhere he's critical of the morals. So is it that there were terrible morals or is it that he was such a person that could not be happy <laughs> at any place and just had this wanderlust and had to go again somewhere else? I love that words you've just used, looking over their shoulders. Yeah. Um, Lucy, as a final question, can I just ask, do you have a favorite scribal edition? <laughs> there is... Uh, There are many nice ones. I like those about the girls that when when the scribe um, would like to get a kiss from a, from a nice girl or something. So they they are cute. So. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> On that interesting point, I think we must leave it there. My thanks to you, Lucy, for sharing your knowledge and your enthusiasm for the scribes of late medieval Bohemia. It's been absolutely fascinating <laughs> and I've enjoyed every single minute of talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Today I've been talking to Lucy Dolezalova about scribal editions, the scribes, their humour, their nonsense. My thanks to all of you for listening and please do look out for the next Meeson podcast in which we talk to Meeson members and associates about their ongoing or current research into the medieval world of Central Europe. And if you have research that you or your colleagues are doing and you would like to talk about it, please do contact me through the Meeson board or Meeson website administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the Meeson podcast. Thank you and goodbye until the next time. <laughs> <laughs>